Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and the one thing you need to know about me is that my hair could eat you. I was just expecting us to like do like soul revealing serious things, and I get I. <laughs> I guess if your hair does eat people, that's that's a pretty important revelation. I'm Cameron, and in order to understand me at all, you have to know that I have social anxiety. I'm Ben. The one thing you need to know about me is that I have a thousand projects going on all at once and can't find the time to dedicate my life to any one of them at once. I'm Aaliyah, and I guess the most telling thing about me is my biggest pet peeve is when you open a new Word document, the default font is something like Calibri 11 instead of Times New Roman 12. And I don't know why. I don't know if they're servicing non-humans. I have news that will absolutely make your life, Aaliyah. In fact, change the default font settings in Word. Oh, wow. Yes, this has changed my world. We shall talk. We should probably get started. So this week we are talking about what makes a fabulous first chapter. We're going to talk about it from our perspective as writers and what we put into our fabulous first chapters. And then also hopefully we'll have Ben weigh in about things that make first chapters stick out to him when he is going through the slush pile. What Maybe we'll just have you start, Ben. What is it that you are looking for in a first chapter? And then we can talk about it as readers too. But When I'm reading a first chapter, I'm absolutely looking for perfection. And you hear this all the time at conferences that you go to uh, in writing groups and classes that your first chapter, your first paragraph, your first page, your first 50 pages, etc. They all have to be perfect. And so oftentimes you'll see that authors spend way more time revising those chapters. That's a story for a different time. But in the first chapter, I really do want to see perfection. I want perfect characterization, perfect sense of place. I want perfect world building and perfect pacing. And I think pacing is probably the most important part there because it's all of those things wrapped together. It's not just perfect pacing as in chapter pacing, like the chapter works as a whole. It's it's the chapter has to fit in as a piece of the whole novel. I want to be able to look at the chapter and navigate the rest of the book in my head and make predictions about what will happen next and be excited about reading what happens next so that I'll move on to the next chapter. And, and it's kind of like, for example, holes. I think this is a, is a really good example of that. Even just like the first line is something like, there was no lake at Camp Green Lake. And that's like, a, that's like one of the most perfect first lines that I've ever read. The first chapter really sets the stage for the rest of the novel. And that's what I want to see in a first chapter. If you can deliver that in a first chapter, setting the stage, then I'm going to be really interested. I'm going to want to move on to the next chapter and the next chapter because I've got this idea of what's going on and I want to see if I'm right and, or if I'm wrong and, and all of those things combined. So that's really what I'm looking for in a first chapter. Perfection. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be perfect. No, no, no. I think that that's true. I mean, especially from an agent's perspective where you're just going through chapter after chapter after chapter, like it's hard to get snagged on something unless it's absolutely perfect. I like what you said about how it has to be perfection in in placement and kind of feel, because that's what I, I look for most in a book I'm going to enjoy is the voice of the narrator or the voice of the characters, how that sets the scene. I don't want to sound like snooty or anything when I say that I'm looking for perfection. It really needs to be that way because I need to fall in love with it. 
And if I don't fall in love with your book right away, it's probably because there are errors in your first chapter. And that's the thing that I'm seeing. And if I don't fall in love with it, I'm not going to be able to convince an editor to fall in love with it. And if I can't convince an editor to fall in love with it, that editor is not going to be able to convince her boss to fall in love with it or her sales team or her marketing team. And if you can't convince those people to fall in love with the book, you're never going to get a book deal. So it really does need to be packaged perfectly. Just in in reading both for lit service and then also I've done like um, author mentor match and other things like that. A lot of first chapter, like getting really into a first chapter is subjective because I have specific taste in books and I like fantasy and I like sci-fi and I like specific things within those genres. Like I like really twisty, complicated sci-fi and fantasy rather than the lighter stuff. So like there's that that plays into it. But when I read a first chapter, the things that I'm looking for are just what Ben is talking about as well, that if according to the genre, you have like a great character voice and a great hook into a story where the hook makes sense for the genre. To me, first chapters really are all about setting expectations, making promises, and setting the stage for the rest of your book. And if you haven't set up all of that in your first chapter properly, I'm not going to be excited to read the rest of it. Now that we know to be perfect, what are some tips for being perfect? Yeah, let's break it down here. There's a giant uh, super tip attached to our demand for perfection, isn't there? That you should only write this perfect first chapter after you've written everything else. Yeah, that's a that's perfectly stated. It's true. I was just reading an article that was, or it was an interview with Barbara Kingsolver this week. Her new book just came out and she gave six points of advice to writers and I'll post a link to the article with the podcast, but two of the things on her list were give yourself permission to write a crappy book. And then the next one was revise that crappy book. So it isn't crappy anymore, (laughs) which I love that from Barbara Kingsolver. She's so successful. And like, she writes the smartest, most amazing historical fiction. And she's just like, just write the crappy book first. (laughs) But it's true. In order to write a good first chapter, you have to you have to be finished with everything else. You have to have your plot all completely worked out, your character arcs and everything worked out so that you can make the right promises in your first chapter. Because if you're discovery writing, which everybody does a little bit, like even if you're a really rigid planner, you're going to end up finding some things as you go. And so finding the exact right place to start that's close enough to your inciting incident, but far enough back that we understand your character and are invested in following them, like you're not going to be able to figure that out until after you've already written an entire book. There's no reason to be intimidated by the demand for a first perfect chapter because you have to write the whole rest of the book first anyway. So yeah. do the first, then worry about it. It'll be really in your character's voice and you'll know the things that are important to them. And we could harp on this for a really long time, actually. So, yeah, yeah I think good first chapters, they, they do have that perfect blend of character and plot in proportion. A good first chapter should show us kind of what the motivations are and give us a hint at conflict otherwise. If the world is beautiful, there's no reason to go on. Maybe this is more on a level of personal taste, but I would I would say more than a hint of what the conflict is going to be. I would like to be hit over the head with it personally. That's fair. I think it depends on the genre. But like actually, just as you said that, I was thinking about Strange the Dreamer, which I just read recently by Lainey Taylor. And the first chapter, and, and it's Lainey Taylor, so she has a lot of room to do whatever she wants in her books. But the first chapter shows what's happening during the climax. And then it goes way back in time to start the story over again. And so in order to show, like there are a couple of things you find out right in that first chapter. One is that 
somebody falls out of the sky and that she's blue. And that means something to the people in the town she falls on more than just that someone fell out of the sky. And that sets up the entire conflict and like difficulty for both of the main characters for the rest of the book, even though she pulls it from the, the climax pretty much. I don't know if that actually helped with anything. Anyway, another another thing that Kristen mentioned when we were talking about this, she used to read for an agent slush pile. And she said a lot of times something she came across is that people started it one chapter too soon. And most people would do a whole lot better if they cut their first chapter. I see that actually a lot in reviewing manuscripts and just getting queries in general is people start their manuscripts in the wrong spot all the time and it's often like if you just cut this first chapter and start in chapter two it would be way better is there anything that is like a red flag to you then in the first chapter yeah absolutely i mean i I probably should have said this before but overwriting i i see this all the time in in just the first page is that the author and mostly it is just the first page but that's part of the first chapter so here we go in the first page the first paragraph, the first sentence, the author will try to sound smarter than she is or sound more eloquent with her language or to give me a different uh, style than what the rest of the book is written in, probably because they've been told over and over and over again that they need to have a perfect first paragraph and a perfect first line. And so they way overwrite this first line, this, this first paragraph and then they ease back into their natural writing style and it just is so jarring and the solution to this i feel like is just to be honest with yourself and with your writing style and your skill like if you are honest with yourself looking at the first chapter that you've just written that first paragraph you'll be able to tell if it's overwritten or if it's in the same style as the rest of your your book which it should be Perfect Perfect doesn't mean overly verbose or purple prose, right? No, not at all. Not at all. And I can tell, like, if I like your query enough to scroll down and read your first pages that you've attached to your query, and I see that the first couple of paragraphs have been overwritten, and then you start to ease back into your natural writing style, I'm going to pass on that because I don't have time to go through the whole thing and see what's right and what's wrong and what's not flowing together and what your style actually is and and tell you how to fix it. I'm just going to pass on it and go to the next person because I've got, you know, 400 other queries to read. It's not an agent's job to be an editor. Unfortunately, um, that's mostly, mostly <laughs> true. I think that what I mean to say is that it's not an agent's job to help you progress from being a mediocre writer into a good one. There you go. That is spot on. So I we will should... tell, I'll tell authors this so often is that you should not ever send me your first draft because it's not ready. Oh, man. And I already know that. Yeah. Just, just from first draft experience. Even if your drafts are good, they'll be better if you do it again. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. need feedback and eyes on your writing before anyone important gets to see it. Just rule of thumb. If yeah. there's anything writing on someone reading your work, make sure about 10 people who are not important read it first. That's not a very nice way to say that. But people who are not going to be. People who are going to determine the fate of your manuscript. Exactly. You don't want to waste chances on a first draft. Yeah. Maybe we should do like really fast. What's your favorite first chapter you've ever written? Read, not written. I love Howl's Moving Castle. Oh, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Because I feel like the first chapter sets up what the main character thinks of the world, where her problems are, 
and also that this is going to be a fairy tale. Awesome. I really like The Hate You Give, the first chapter. It's so amazing because it sets up all of the conflict and the the character conflict and the social commentary. It's just fabulous. Cameron? <sighs> Come back to me. Okay, fine. Then. Dang, I was... No, that's <laughs> me. No, I'm just kidding. Off the, okay. um, I, did say, I did say earlier that I think Holes by Lewis Sacker is one of the one of the probably best crafted books that I've ever read. And it has a really great first chapter. I really like that one. Okay, go ahead, Cameron, if you found one. If not, we'll just say <sighs> you died. I died. So <laughs> this is probably semi-cheating. This is a terrible example, so I shouldn't give it anyway. But I really like, see, you know, I have to preface this by saying it's the second prologue of The Way of Kings. <laughs> Which I've heard, I've heard Sanderson describe as he wrote, he deliberately wrote it this way so that people coming in know that they're in for a world of hurt as far as world building is concerned. Even though it breaks just about every single rule for first chapters, I love it. You know what? That's fine. I I just want to say something about rules really quick. Is that we are? I mean, we're in a podcast right now telling you rules about your first chapter. We are constantly going to workshops we are constantly taking classes we are constantly listening to people who we think are smarter than ourselves telling us rules about writing and generally it's a good idea to follow those however if for an artistic reason or a commercial reason that you feel is sensible reasonable and will work you want to deviate from those rules then do it because a lot of the times, like Cameron just said, they can be amazing. Masters can break rules and not only get away with it, but actually have something pretty spectacular. But note yeah. that it's, it's the masters. You know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get there first. Even if Sanderson had written The Way of Kings exactly as it is as his first novel, no one would have published it because they wouldn't have believed he could carry out on the promises he was making. That's probably true. I think at the same time, knowing the rules is really important, and knowing when your work doesn't fit into them is also really important. That's why our tagline is purveyors of dodgy writing advice is because none of it's like concrete, like definite rules. It's just the way we see it and the way we think about things. And in general, hopefully it applies, but it's not necessarily going to apply to everything you write. Anyway, we should probably move on. A quick review of how we critique first chapters. We try to be non-prescriptive except for Ben, which means we try not to give advice on how to fix things, but rather um, where we see problem areas so that you can identify the things that are problems and change them the way you want to, according to how your book is going to go. Because we've only read the first chapter. If you'd like to see the submission that we are critiquing, you can see it on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. And if you would like a first chapter critique, you can also find our submission guidelines on that same website. So this submission is about a little boy named Nigel. He's not that little, though. I mean, he's 12. So he's a middle grade person. <laughs> he's a preteen. <laughs> I'm a third person. Let's That's be a great way to describe someone. He is awkward as possible. Okay. He is a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> and he is in Egypt with his uncle, who is excavating tombs in 1919. He really, really wants to get involved with archaeology, and he's really interested in Egyptian history and culture and what's in the tombs, but he is not being allowed to do so. At the end of the submission, his, his uncle takes him into one of the tombs to look around and that's pretty much where we go. So things that we like. Well, I definitely felt like this author knew their stuff as far as what Egypt looks like, what Egypt, I guess, like what the temperature is. There's a really nice, just brief mm -hmm. sketch of what they're smelling, seeing, feeling at the beginning. And it felt really cool. I feel um, like there were a couple of nice one-line sentences in there, like the uh, 
in the very beginning it says sand trickled down like waterfalls and that's a that's a pretty great um like little waterfalls sorry let me clarify that but that's a great image right there and it's a really cool dichotomy as you know sand is dry and water is wet and it's a really cool just one line image. And I feel like there are a couple of those throughout the piece that I really liked. I liked, and Kristen also did, even though she had a family emergency and couldn't be here today, but I'm going to be reading some of her feedback. She really liked the line, I'm waiting for the right adventure, which I also liked too. And I had some caveats on it, but I was shot down in the in the notes. So maybe no, I just won't say them. <laughs> I mean, it makes for a good discussion. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay. I really liked the line. I don't know how true it is to his character because... Nigel, as we progress through the submission, it's obvious that he would take anything interesting happening. He's so bored. He's sitting under a canopy right next to an Egyptian tomb, and he's being forced to read textbooks about tombs rather than being allowed to like go and explore. And so the fact that he says he's waiting for the right adventure, that seems more like he would like gobble down anything that came his way. You're absolutely right that he would definitely take any adventure at this point. But I think this is a nice line here because it's not true. He's saying this for the, um, like the, the reason he's saying this is to save face with this little girl who's, who's, uh, asking him why he's just sitting around instead of going on an adventure. Um, he's implying that he's purposefully not adventuring because he wants to wait for the right one, even though, you know, we as the audience know that that's not true. So I thought it was a pretty good show of character because it's a lie because it, yes, absolutely. <laughs> because it's a lie. I did like the sense we got from him that he, he considers himself very sophisticated and educated, but he may not actually be that sophisticated <laughs> or educated. A good, unreliable narrator is always fun. Yeah. I felt like we were really grounded in Nigel and like who he is and what he wants and like physically too. Like I knew exactly where he was. It was awesome. And there were lots of really great lines. Um, like he was telling his uncle that if his uncle doesn't take him to a tomb, he's going to go explore by himself. And he says, and then you'll have to explain to mom why I was eaten by a mummy. And when he's throwing up dried chickpeas and tries to catch them in his mouth, like a hungry juggler. I thought that was kind of a fun way of saying it. And then the description of the little girl who comes and talks to him, Panya, when he first shakes her hand, she's he's thinking that she's soft and frail, but then comes to the conclusion that it seemed as if she'd been on plenty of adventures herself. It was a good line. Mm-hmm. I'll agree. I also like his ridiculous combination of like confidence when it's obvious he doesn't deserve any, which is kind of what Aaliyah was saying too. He's a funny little guy. I feel like you've built kind of a good character here that's who wants something clearly and there's something standing in his way of getting it and you've built that into the chapter really well we are ready to move on to things that might need a second look one of the things that i struggled with the most in this chapter is that the character reads as much older than 12 to me yeah Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i made several comments in the manuscript that he sounded like a grown man at times i will definitely second that i would also say that that is made worse by the fact that he's so concerned about the girl that he's talking to. It Mm -hmm. seems almost flirtatious when he's talking to her, which at 12, like, I suppose you could be getting into that arena, but like, it just seems too old for me for him to be so obsessed with it. Not obsessed, but just focused on it. I mean, from a, from my standpoint, I was absolutely doing that at 12. So. Okay, fine. Ben is just arguing with me today. Jeez. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is, this is why it's dodgy because, you know, we disagree with each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also it's subjective. I mean, like everybody yeah. takes different stuff from. I think paired with the older voice is okay. what. Got Combination me. with the lack of other tags to say he's younger. It didn't help. Yeah. Probably get away with it if there was other 
this is a 12 year old stuff going on. So one of my other big notes is that I went down the research rabbit hole on this, which I totally shouldn't do when I'm reading first chapters, but sometimes it happens. And there were a couple of details that I snagged on that I didn't want to sound stupid saying that they weren't applicable to his voice. And so I went and found out whether or not they were real. But I think the problem I had with them It's just a couple of dialogue tags or descriptions that he makes. Like he casually refers to something as a a rough slide, which slides weren't in common public spaces until like the 50s. And this is taking place in 1919. He talks about uh, his uncle looking like a gorilla, which totally he could have seen when he's a rich kid from London or from England anyway. And so it's possible that he's seen a gorilla in person, but he refers to it in such an offhand way. It makes me feel like everybody has seen a gorilla that he knows and would understand that reference. And the same with the slide. Like it's possible that he has a slide that someone made for him, but just because it it wasn't a specific enough detail, it was just like a generally like thrown out there kind of detail. There's also one about a garden gnome, which were absolutely a thing in England before World War I, which this is happening anyway. So the details weren't problems in of themselves if they had been more specific. And this is super prescriptive. But because they were just thrown out there, they they made me snag on them. Did anyone else feel that way? I didn't even notice that. Probably because I wasn't looking for it. But in general, that's a very good piece of advice. Make sure that your details are time specific. So some of the things Caitlin wrote quite the extensive comment and I don't, and, and she's not mentioning some of the stuff I thought was really good. So I'm going to say it. Some of the examples she gave, so like instead of just saying gorilla, like saying, Oh, like a gorilla that I saw at the London zoo or the garden gnome that my grandmother who's, you know, had domes before world war one, just this way of not just so like the gorilla detail is good, but you can make things like that better by grounding it to something specific in the character's past by saying a gorilla that like you saw at the London zoo Rather than just us knowing, okay, he's aware of gorillas, we know that at some point in his past, he was in a position to go to the London Zoo. And that's just a whole lot more information with a very few extra words than we would have otherwise. Well, all of those details are things that could have happened, but it's a stretch, if yeah. that makes sense. And yeah. so just with a little bit more couching in context, I would have been fine with them. And the only reason I snagged on them is because I'm like, I'm not sure that's right. And then I had to go look and I'm like, I guess it could be. But like the the point is that you don't want people to snag on details. And so if you give context, then they won't. Some other details that I I did snag on, one of them was when it describes his pith helmet blowing off and skipping across the sand. I don't have much experience with pith helmets, but I was wondering how light this thing was that, that a gust of wind would blow it away. And then the other note I had is at the end, this this body comes alive in the tomb. And that was really cool because the atmosphere had kind of been set up for it to be a little spooky for Miles or for um, the main character. But I did kind of suspect that it was just a setup his uncle had done. And so as the reader, I wasn't terribly invested in the outcome. I think the the way the story is set up right now, the first chapter, I had a really hard time with because it seems to skip back and forth. And maybe this is just me because I like things to be really streamlined, but it seemed kind of odd that he was sitting by the tomb and then he talks to his uncle or he yells at his uncle and then he talks to Panya and then he tells his uncle or he tells his uncle first that he wants to go in a tomb and then he talks to Panya and then he's like, well, I guess I'll just sneak off and starts to go. And then his uncle immediately takes him to a tomb. And so the conflict that I thought was being set up was immediately resolved. So instead think, of the uncle just saying, well, go ahead, Ben, you're going to argue. With oh, me. No, I was just going to say that I think that 
what I, I noticed here is that kind of similar is that the proximity of all of these locations in the first chapter feels really close. Like how many dig sites are there next to each other? Where's this great pyramid that he's talking about versus the dig site that they're at versus the other pyramid that he's taking him to. And, and like how close are all of these things? It just seemed like they were next door to each other when I'm having a hard time imagining that they would be. I do know that like a tomb complex is mentioned at one point. So my, my Egyptian is not the sharpest, but I think that that is a thing. If that is a thing, then, then I would say that might need to be, might need some more grounding geographic details about the layout. I agree. It definitely, the, the uh, setting was good. You, you were able to capture the feel of what it felt like to be in Egypt, but it, it, at least from, from what I can tell, but it just felt like I didn't know exactly where everything was. So another thing, this is just like the standard caveat or the standard like advice I give to anyone who's writing about something outside their own culture, which this isn't exactly because it's a British person in Egypt. But like, so I love the Crocodile and the Sandbake books, which are set in the same time period in like same area. But I will say that British, etc., archaeologists going into Egyptian historical sites and stealing artifacts from them pretty much is kind of like uncomfortable history. And I'm really hoping that that is a part of the story because like, especially in this time right now where we're trying to give good, honest representation and like, I guess like colonialism is another thing that is is definitely in the consciousness of the writing community right now. And so I just would be either really careful or make sure that you have sensitivity readers and I don't know, make sure that's part of your story. (laughs) Just don't culturally appropriate anything. Which, well, and it's not just cultural appropriation, but it's also like... This is like British colonialism, which is is an uncomfortable thing. I feel like it was distilled down to one line where Nigel is talking to Panya, who is a native of the area, and says, "That's your heritage we're digging up." And it just it might be making promises that that's going to be a part of the story, which I would be okay with. This has nothing to do with what you were talking about, but I also felt like the main character, or at least the narration, was trying to sound too British, or not was trying to sound, but did sound like the writer was trying to make it. British rather than an authentic way a British person would speak. I might be like eating my foot here if the author is actually um, from England, but in general, it sounded off to me. So this would have been at most a year after World War One ended. And I feel like I wanted some kind of nod to that, given that this is a British person in Egypt. Since we're talking about first chapters today. And since I'm talking, I mean, since I opened up the podcast with just talking about how I wanted to want to see a perfect first chapter that I need to see perfection and characterization in, in setting and in pacing. I didn't really feel like, um, the, the, uh, the pacing of this chapter hit the right marks. It was a pretty simple read but I didn't find myself attached to any one character or any one goal or, or anything really here. And I didn't find that as the chapter was nearing its end that I wanted to keep reading to find out more of what was going on in the story. I don't feel like the stage was set. I don't feel like I can tell from this chapter that I know where the story's going, that I know the conflict, that, that I really get this character and that I really know what his struggle is going to be throughout this whole story. And I feel like those are promises that you can make in the first chapter, but weren't made here. 
And so I would suggest as, as a reader and as an agent that you go back, figure out all of those things, you know, what this character wants, what this conflict of the story is, and everything that we've talked about today that you can put in your first chapter and really think about revising accordingly. Maybe maybe this is a personal preference thing, but for me, it felt like the opening conflict of the submission was boredom. And for me, boredom is just not that compelling of a conflict. So I think that's everything we've got. Thank you, Ben, for coming on the show. Yeah. Our guest for the next episode will be, surprise, surprise, Ben again. Yay! <laughs> Submission's open today. Um, get us your chapter by next Thursday if you'd like a chance for Ben to critique your work. If you've submitted to Ben before but did not get chosen, feel free to submit again. Remember, this is both a video and a podcast, so you can either watch us on YouTube or you can listen on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review or a comment. It helps others to find the show. If you'd like to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome or get angry at us, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram is at Lit Service Podcast. For Lit Service, thank you for listening and we will see you in two weeks.